This episode contains spoilers as well as some strong language for the 1988 classic, can't believe you haven't seen it yet, Die Hard. And let me tell you, if you're okay with some light international terrorism, oh my gosh, and a yippee kaye, well then please enjoy the show. Just like that, we kickstart one of the greatest action movies of all time. Like 30 minutes in, but yeah, I like your enthusiasm, Pat. You're damn right. Who are you, by the way? I don't think we've ever seen you on this show before. That's Marissa. <laughs> uh, my name is Dom, and I am a friend of the show. Damn right you are. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dom Dorsa. In this inadequate order of explaining who we are, please, let's talk about our guest first. Dom, we're so excited to have you on the show. I am enthused to be here, to say the least. Oh, yes. And get your thinking cap on. We're about to literally (laughs) tip our hats to you, sir, for being here with us today. Um, For those of you tuning in for the first time... My name is Pat. I'm Marissa. And this is Movie Mixology, the podcast where we make a drink and then watch a film that features or is inspired by said drink. And then we enjoy both. Wait for it. Very, very greatly. Been kind of slacking on the intros lately, I think. But I mean, tis the fucking season, guys. This is indeed a special episode. This is the holiday special. This is a Christmas movie. Patrick is obviously very excited. He's uh, four sheets to the wind over here. I love it. We are very excited. And a yippee kaye. <laughs> there you go, baby. Oh, man. Get in the spirit because today it's a special episode, just as Marissa said. It's our Christmas special. Our second special we've done today, to date, rather. And we're watching a film that is near and dear to our hearts John McTiernan's Die Hard. I mean,. We could just end the episode right here at three minutes and 14 seconds. Is that actually an option? (laughs) Yeah, but also we could because (laughs) we've said all we need to say. Have we? We haven't said anything yet. That's how good Die Hard is. Watch yourself. (laughs) You're speaking to a legend over here in the form of Patrick Gibbons, okay? (laughs) Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. You're, You're not welcome. That's why we bring you on. No, it's not. <laughs> so we did watch Die Hard, a film, for those of you who have not seen it, about 
an every man, a man that speaks near and dear to our hearts, NYPD officer John McClane. Jesus Christ, if you will. Some people, some cultures believe yes. <laughs> some, and some cultures, yeah. He is a messianic figure. Yes, he is. Yes, really he is. destined to bring salvation where one thought not possible in the face of insurmountable odds. You are meant to bring balance to Nakatomi Plaza. He not really join does. them. <laughs> Overcomes them with grace and with pistols. With pistols, yeah. And it's just... Copious amounts of C4. It's just this movie does not get not tiresome. Not to forget chest hair. Oh, my oh. God. He has a little tuft. Right above his wife beater is just a little tuft of hair. And it's like all he has. It's yes. pretty, It's pretty sexy, to say the least. I... I won't lie and say you know it it got me aroused yeah i I felt it all right i'll just let you two take the rest of the show i'm gonna go (laughs) away and talk to somebody about die hard no wait 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 wait. you can't talk about die hard without talking about the magic that is 80s bruce willis all right you're stealing one of my shots i won't steal it i just going to tell you. You knew I was going to talk about that. And I he won't did. step on that right now. All I will say is you're right. I know. Thank you. And I love you. I know. Marissa, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and so, you know what? I think we shouldn't even waste time. We should just say, if you've seen Die Hard, then you're probably most people. If you have not seen Die Hard, <laughs> please go watch Die Hard because it's one of the most influential action movies of all time. Has one of the greatest stories in a modern action movie to this day. It's influenced countless things that people that grew up in our age group take for granted and see all the time and, you know, originated all that stuff. Has a stellar cast, has an incredible villain, has some great messaging, and has enough things that three people can each bring up three points about him. Yeah, it's it's like I wish you a libertarian Christmas. That's Die Hard. It, there's like a divide culturally in America. You have like the three classic Christmas movies. You have A Christmas Story, which is Middle America, Midwest. You have Die Hard, which is like libertarian Christmas, Gun Ho, Michael Bay, shoot, eat your heart out. And then you have Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I happen to grow up in a mixed household. We respected all three. God bless you. Allah am Shay. But... At the end of the day, I feel like Die Hard is my favorite Christmas movie. And maybe Marissa will bring this up. There's some people who don't even consider it in the pantheon. Of Dom, did you read my mind? I literally have a note here that says, discuss yes. the debate. Okay. <laughs> there, we really... How did you know I was going to... You were just like, that's something Marissa would bring up. <laughs> yeah, we really can't be like beating around the bush any further. Yeah, I just bring up all the obvious points. That's my shtick. <laughs> <That's the laughs> I don't know about all that. <laughs> Dom. Yeah. You are only our third guest ever in the history of this show. Good things come in threes. It's true. And you are our third least favorite guest. (laughs) What? So I think that, you know. Patrick, why are you ranking our guests? That's not very nice. I mean, I just wanted to take Dom down a peg. I mean, earlier he (laughs) insulted me. I insulted him. It's our rapport. It is our rapport. Yeah. We've been having this rapport ever since you and I watched Food Fight in a hotel room. Well, I will say, Pat, this is my second favorite podcast I've been a part of. 
but I mean, but who's counting? No one's counting, Ooh. but I am. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, that's why we save plugs for the end. Okay. Okay. Dick. But um, <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and get into the question that we like to ask all of our friends on the pod. Seven inches. Oh, oh my god. Uh, the second all right, question. get ready, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that wasn't the question. This was the oh. uh, yeah. I was, I was, I was wondering if we would need to give additional warnings before this episode <laughs> <laughs> that we, in addition no, 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 to no, no, our no. normal. The question warnings. is, it's twofold. Okay. What started your love of movies? What is your background with movies and your love of discussing them and viewing them? Hmm. Well, I would say that would have to do with my pops. You know pops, Pat. Oh, yes. Yeah. Dr. Dorsa, welcome aboard. <laughs> I, I connected with my dad. He He's a hard guy to connect with, but movies was always an easy familial social lubricant. Yeah. He always had the TV on. He He's the kind of guy you'd be upstairs and you'd hear the TV downstairs and you couldn't sleep. So you'd sneak down the stairs and hit power on the remote and that'd be what wake him up. Yeah, the, the, the lack of sil- of sound would wake him up. The absence of sound, so he always had movies on nonstop. He's got such a random. He's a huge John Claude Van Damme fan, and I feel like you can't oh. you can't watch John Claude Van Damme movies without dissecting them for your own sanity. And the best no, way to really dissect can't. something is with Damascus steel blades. Yeah, now, good plug. Good plug. Now, let me ask you this. Now, when your father would be watching movies and then suddenly wake up... No, no, no. Whoa, whoa. Okay. Did I give you the wrong impression? He, he doesn't watch the movies. No, no, He's okay. Asleep. Sorry, sorry. It's like when your father had movies The music playing. of the TV is what keeps him in his slumber. Sure. Dads fall asleep watching TV. Like, 100%. Yeah. I'm watching movies, watching TV. It's just like... It's, it's noise. It's white noise. Well, so my dad would get home from work really late. Yeah. He was a doctor. He worked in a hospital. So my mom would already be asleep upstairs in the master bedroom. So my dad would put the TV on and invariably fall asleep on the couch. Of course. But my mom is a super light sleeper. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where if, like, if the TV was off downstairs and I made a single sound upstairs, it would wake her up and she would be pissed. Mm-hmm. So being downstairs next to my dad and the TV and the movies, it was like the only safe place in the house to where you could be loud is because it <laughs> blended into the TV sounds, right? So every time I wanted to like, if I, I couldn't sleep, I wanted some like midnight egos or my brother was awake, we'd be downstairs near the TV. My dad would be passed out like Job of the Hut on the couch and we could go bingo solo and we'd just be sitting there eating midnight snacks. This is a true American story, Dom. I it want is. you to write your next short story. About this. <laughs> it's a very Gatsby-esque <laughs> It's forming story. right now. It is, yeah. it is. Dom, what is a drink that you like to have when you watch movies? Drink I like to have. When I watch What's movies. your go-to movie-watching drink? Are you a wine guy? Do you like to pour yourself a, a finger or two of whiskey? I mean, what's your thing? Yeah. So if I'm going to be drinking alcohol and watching a movie, I would say my go-to is Dr. Pepper and Crown Royal. Crown and Dr. Pepper. Really? Dr. Yeah. Pepper? I've never tried that with as a mixer. Dr. Pepper is a great mixer in my opinion. Shout out Dr. P. But Dr. Pepper <laughs> and Crown Royal is my favorite alcoholic beverage combo for a movie. Dr. Pepper and Crown Royal. Sounds good, actually. Your doctor and your royalty? Exactly. Exactly. Jeez, big head. Mm-hmm. It's Prince Prince Pepper. Prince wow. Pepper. Prince Pepper himself. I like that. You well, know that what, was 
Definitely. In West Waco, born and raised. <laughs> on the... and stop. <laughs> Those stop. were some um, very impressive answers. Thank you. I, and, I think um, so too. And Now we're going to talk about the drink that we have here today that you joined us for yes. this episode to drink. For our specials, we'll typically do an inspired by drink, Dom, as you know, mm-hmm. and this episode was no exception. Even though a drink actually does appear in this movie, it was a little too generic for our taste. A little too Gennaro? Gennaro for our taste. We're more McLean <laughs> people than mm-hmm. Gennaro people. Um, this movie has a scene where John McLean gets handed champagne. And it's very inconspicuous. It's like a blink and you'll miss it. A waiter says, champagne. John takes it, walks throughout a room of auditorium full of people, and next thing you know, he's just sipping it, and then he just quickly puts it back because a drunk man could not accomplish what John McClane accomplished. No, and also man. John McClane is not a champagne guy. I don't think it's his style. Quite he's, a, his... he's a Franzia guy. Yeah, he's more of a not that. And and so I think that... Yeah, that's, it, that's more or less what we said. <laughs> And so I think that it goes without saying that we had to come up with a drink of our own, uh, a fun spin on a classic, the champagne cocktail. And with that, we had to involve champagne, some cognac or brandy, some bitters, some sugar, and just, you know, some good old-fashioned good time. <laughs> is that what we mixed in there? There's yeah. some good times. Good old. How many? The uh, Robert yeah. Pattinson 2018 movie. Yes. <laughs> great, great film. Some good old fashioned uh, good time. Yes. So we we also mixed in like some syrup, right? Carrot would be corn the sugar. syrup. Oh, okay. Because John McClane's a corn So fed the champagne boy. cocktail. It's pretty simple cocktail, right? What you do is you take about an ounce to an ounce and a half of brandy or cognac over ice, pour it into a glass. Then you mix in a couple of dashes of bitters. You know, the the typical recipe calls for Angostura bitters, but we thought, uh, this drink is often garnished with maraschino cherries. Let's do some cherry bitters. Give it some extra flavor, some fruitiness, right? And the typical recipe calls for sugar, just plain old sugar that dissolves when you stir it. But we were like, man, wouldn't it be great if we added these extra flavors? So what we did was we added about an ounce and a half of cognac over ice. And then we mixed in a tablespoon of corn syrup, not sugar. Sugar. And and for any of you uh, guests listening at home, it's it's not sugar, but (laughs) corn syrup. So what's more American than corn syrup? Sugar? John (laughs) McClain. And Twinkies, baby. Yeah, it's everything oh, a growing yeah. boy needs went into this cocktail. You fucking bet. And so we mix all that with a couple of shots of cherry bitters, and then we topped it with champagne. And specifically, Riesling sparkling champagne. It's just Riesling sparkling, the most German wine you can get. But Well, I don't know about that, but it was the first one that we saw. <laughs> Sure, yeah. For the listeners, though, it's the most German mm-hmm. wine you can mm-hmm. get, baby. Yeah. Straight from- And why does it matter that it's the most German thing you can get? Because Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, is the least German German villain <laughs> in any movie I've ever seen. 
Yeah, that's probably fair. But still, it inspired an incredible film and one that I can't wait to talk about. So let's get into our top three things that we have to discuss when it comes to 1988's Die Hard. It's time for Triple Shot. Merry Christmas. All right, Dom, as our first guest in many episodes, my gosh, I mean, it's so nice of you to make this time to come with us. I'm, I can't I imagine you it. have any more important, uh, you know, social contracts that you need to fill out this time. No, I actually, uh, <clears throat> I have COVID quarantine that I'm supposed to be doing. That's why for anyone listening at home, this is a social distance episode. I'm at least four feet away from Pat. And five feet away from Marissa, you know. Average is out. Everyone get your vaccine. Yeah, yeah but seriously. Yeah, but, but seriously. seriously. Um, go ahead and give us the first thing that you have to discuss when it comes to Die Hard. The first thing I have to discuss is it's just such a period piece. It's the late 80s. I, I said in the introduction, <laughs> it is the libertarian Merry Christmas. Like, the big cultural shock for me as someone who just flew home for the holidays John McClane is in his wife, Holly Gennaro's office when the shooting starts. And you see him immediately reach for his chest holster where he keeps his pistol. He's a cop in New York City. Now that implies since he came straight from the airport to the limo to Nakatomi Plaza, that this guy flew with his pistol. And in the beginning, it's kind of alluded to. He's on the plane. He's talking to the guy next to him. He's like, you flying home for the holidays? He's like, no. He just flew all the way across the country with a loaded handgun. That's how American this movie is. There's nothing more gun rights, freedom, Yahoo, fight the Axis powers, Japan and Germany, than John McClane flying from New York City to Los Angeles with a loaded weapon. It really is unimaginable today. The other part, though, that definitely shows you what time period it is, is when Argyle in the limousine is telling me, he's like, we got CDs, we got VHS, it's got TV, it's got CB. It's like... All that's so old school. And later on in the movie, Argyle, the the song Skeletons by Stevie Wonder, like, it's playing, and it cuts away, and John McClane does like 20 minutes of John McClane stuff, and then it cuts back, and that song's still playing. Well, you know why? Because there's no iPod to put on shuffle. This guy, this poor soul, is stuck <laughs> on Christmas Eve with one CD or one VHS or whatever the hell in the tape deck, and it's just stuck on repeat. Wait, what was the song again? Skeletons by uh, Stevie Wonder. Well, yeah, how does it go? <laughs> like that. Nice, nice. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that, that shit stuck out to me hard, um, particularly when it comes to the die, technology. Particularly die hard? It, it died hard and then got Sorry. <laughs> resurrected. Uh, it, it, we're, we're really reaching, folks. So another thing I love is just when John first enters the building, there he he goes up to the security guy. He's like, "I'm looking for Holly McLean." He's like, well, "Check the sign-in building," and he 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 clicks the little touchscreen 1980s <laughs> edition, like he's about to play golf at it's a bar. Fancy, yeah, and it is pretty fancy. Well, Don't that's, step on my fucking first shot. Well, I was gonna say that scene in reality that it's not a touchscreen. He is coordinating. He's choreographing his finger touches to the screen changing, and that's it's really cool. They're trying to show how Nakatomi Plaza is this state-of-the-art building, which comes into play. They have to break these seven seals, you know, in order to get into the vault. Mm. And so 
But to the modern viewer, you're like, touchscreens, it's, it's no biggie. So that's lost on the modern viewer. You're supposed to see that and go, no one's breaking in an Akatomi Plaza vault. <laughs> oh, shit. Y- y- it's yeah. a screen that you can touch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think this movie is the modern Orpheus. Oh, it's wow. John McCain take. is Orpheus traveling through the underworld to find his lost love. The underworld of corporate America. Of corporate America. It's yeah. an amazing take. I think... I'm going to expand mm-hmm. on that a little bit in my first shot because I don't want uh, anybody else to take more of it. Um, <laughs> but essentially, I agree. That stuck out to me ever since like maybe the second time I watched this movie that Nakatomi Plaza is almost sci-fi in its impregnability and its ability, like its, its weird draw of cultures coalescing here. It's a Japanese-owned business that has American staff that is being invaded by Germans. And, you know, arguably it's so state of the art that it needs non, like a a non-traditional approach to terror in order to actually get away with the heist. And it's funny because you don't see that ever come to total fruition. You see how even with all that, all it takes is logic and intimidation to have it all crumbling down. You know, uh, the Germans, they start this whole terror spree by faking out the receptionist and shooting him, you know, by a very inconspicuous, uncomplicated way. They're able to take down this completely complicated, almost state of the art system, like you said. And I think that it expands even then to some of the weaponry, some of the stuff used by the police, some of the stuff used by um, the the terrorists. All of their weaponry is also state-of-the-art. And what is that, like, all, you know, just undone by? It's undone by this everyman who is just kind of hanging out in a wife beater, tank top, and a pistol. And I think that it's just kind of an ironic thing. Can I, can I say, by the way, the attention to detail of the movie is amazing because Tony, the black hacker guy who he's the only guy in the white sweater in the entire movie, he his introduction to the scene, he walks into Nakatomi Plaza and he's misdirection. Yeah. And he's describing an alley-oop. From a Lakers game. He's describing an alley-oop, alley-oop in a Lakers game. Anyone who watches basketball, an alley-oop is when someone drives to the to, through the paint to like make a bucket and then they throw the ball away so someone else can complete the shot. That's exactly what he does. He draws the security guard's attention so that the German Hans guy behind him or whatever his name is can shoot him in the head. Mm-hmm. So he uses the description of an alley-oop to alley-oop this setup. Yeah. Hmm. With very good attention to detail as we'll probably get into no doubt. But I just, I didn't want to let that be lost on the viewer um, for maybe anybody who's watching this for the first time is the attention to detail like you said, especially when it comes to the technology and just how like, it makes the building a character mm-hmm. and it makes it something that you just are so invested in and like, okay, this building has it all and yet the glaring vulnerabilities of it are just that much more highlighted, especially in the areas where it's still under construction, where some of the best set pieces in action movie history take place. And I just think that that's so good. Like, the writers and John McTiernan really nailed that feeling of, okay, this is supposed to have like some sort of like fictional, fantastical element to it, but yet it's totally grounded 
because of the performance of Bruce, and that's something I'm sure we'll talk about uh, coming up here, but I, I think it's just a perfect balance, and that's why this movie endures so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, the, the idea of the setting of this movie, the 80s, the late 80s, yeah. um, and the, the building, ladies. right? <laughs> it's like, it's just, a, it makes a perfect combination because, you know, without this setting, you wouldn't have the feel, the intensity, you know, like you guys were saying, what makes this movie? So the setting is is just such an important part. And like you guys basically said, it's almost like another character. So Marissa, good. what's your first shot? Um. <sighs> There's so much dis- there's so many debates around this movie, okay? There's is this a Christmas movie? Is this the best action movie? Is this Bruce Willis's best movie? What do I pick from? Okay. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about, I think is the debate over whether this is the best American action movie. So <laughs> and and okay. So this movie has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, both critically and from users. And if you look on IMDb, it has an 8.2. And I guess at first, critically, this movie was received pretty well. But over time, it got sort of this legacy behind it. And like you guys were saying, and you had mentioned that basically everybody has seen this movie like this is something that i remember even in middle school people talked about and you know we were attending middle school in the late 2000s yeah it was like 20 years or so after this movie was came out so it's like this movie almost it's very enduring but i feel like its legacy has built over time and as you guys were saying other action movies have taken from it but i think that this not only in my opinion, is one of the best, you know, action movies. But I think in terms of like the best American action movie, I I can't really think of a movie that is more like just the one that you think of, the first one that comes to your mind, the first one that is like, you know what, what's an, um, you know, an action (laughs) movie? I mean, sure, there's Terminator. Die Hard 2. Oh, there you go. Die Hard 2. That's another one. (laughs) Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Oh, I don't know. No, but I mean, this is is the movie, right? This is the one that everybody compares everything else. This is a movie that people spoof as like the action movie. It, this, it, it's funny you say that because at one point Hans Gruber is like, who do you think you are? Like John Wayne? Are you just somebody who watched too many Westerns? Mm-hmm. And That's then, Gary Cooper, asshole. <laughs> yeah. And then in modern parlance, people are like, who do you think you are? John McClane? Like John yeah. McClane has taken the role of the guy people com- get compared to. For oh yeah. He's a myth. It's here. completely He's mythologized. It's completely self-aware and it's completely like using this formula that other people use, but it's like the perfect formula, right? And I am not, obviously not the first person to say this is not original idea here, but it is just something that I wanted to present because you know, you have this idea of this character, and we'll get more into Bruce Willis himself later, but who's this kind of like rough around the edges guy. He's introduced. Then you got this villain. You've got the perfect setting, right? Um, you got a little exposition, but then um, our main character comes back with the vengeance. He's got funny lines. You know, there's action here, action there. There's some other interesting characters. Um, I think... It's just got such a great sequence, and and I was just trying to think like what other movies 
I mean, obviously, there's other movies that are on the same playing field, but I don't think there's like one single movie that everybody could, most everybody could agree, like, this is the American action movie. You know, I don't, I think this is it. Like, I agree. It, it all comes back to John McCain. John McClane. Yeah, it all comes back to John McCain. John we love him too. But yeah. And I agree, Marissa. I think that just it transcends so many things mm-hmm. and it has endured for that reason. I I mean, I'm sure you're going to talk about Bruce Willis later, but I think his performance is probably perfect. Mm, yeah, and, it is. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, to say that it's a relatable performance and that that plays a role in the transcendency of this movie from like crude action movie to all timer is an understatement. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that uh, that's an excellent point. It just, it's so good. It shouldn't be underestimated how influential it is. And yeah, you know, it's, it's a masterpiece. Dom. Yeah. I think you know what time it is. I have time for my second shot. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Mother, mother lovers. <laughs> yeah, because it's a Christmas movie. Come on, let's be family oriented. Which brings me to my Fuck second you. shot. John McClane's quest for family. It's very Greek, in my opinion. The movie starts this, <laughs> this guy. This goes back to your Orpheus nice. theory. It goes back to, it's the modern Orpheus. It's the American Orpheus. In It's the late 80s, right? American culture is beset. Like you just had the Vietnam War, and you know, like the American family unit's falling apart. So John McClane is literally a man. It's the tale of two coasts. He lives in New York City. His wife's in Los Angeles, and the movie begins with him in this liminal, transitory period, flying on a plane to the underworld, maybe, so that he can regain his family, regain his identity as John McCain. I love this take. You're basically saying L.A. is the underworld. The corporate, oh God, corporate L.A. Corporate L.A. is the underworld. And he also regains his wife. In the beginning of the movie, she's not Mrs. McClane. So is she's Gruber Holly- Hades? Huh? Is Gruber Hades? Yeah. His wife is Holly Gennaro. Yeah. And in the credits, it's listed that she's Holly Gennaro McClane. And at the very mm. end of the movie, she says, no, I'm Holly McClane. I'm Holly McClane. <laughs> Boy. So... John McClane is this character who represents what a lot of people were dealing with, the anxiety of like the family unit falling apart. And he regains it through this horrible test. Uh, he was married to his job, and everything he learned in his job, he put to good use to regain his wife, to regain his own personal sense of honor. But the other thing I like about it, and maybe Marissa, if I'm stealing a point of yours, I'm just going to allude to this. He is not a Bogart. <laughs> he is free. he's an emotional wreck at different points when things don't go when this go his way, like when the fire trucks get redirected. And I, I love John McClane for that reason. And I think the part of the movie that really speaks to his journey is his own apparel. So this is really what I'm gonna get at. You can tell it's the modern Orpheus, but it plays through in the appearance of John McClane. He has to shed his apparel. To make it through the crucible and back. Takes off his armor. He, does. he takes off his armor, yeah, because <laughs> you can't carry stuff through the underworld and back. In fact, uh, it's funny because the, the polarity is really awesome. He takes off his shoes initially so he can experience the pleasure of this Japanese massage pad. Mm. And then towards yeah. the end of the movie, Patrick's favorite scene, he has to run through broken glass. Oh, barefoot God. as a consequence of the hedonism he engaged in earlier just yeah. to get to save his wife. 
Yeah. And then he also he takes off his his nice looking uh, jacket and is left with his uh, his tank top. We'll go with tank mm-hmm. top. That's politically correct. His white tank top. And as he crawls through Nakatomi Plaza's innards, through the innards of hell, it becomes darker and darker. It's uh, rather than you know like the quintessential hero burning away his his sin and being left with a you know lamb's wool white outer garment. His is becoming darker and darker and darker. And what is the shirt that's getting darker and darker that he ultimately throws away, casts aside? A wife beater. The image of the blue collar man who gets its name because it represents a husband who is abusive to his wife. Mm-hmm. And it just gets darker and darker and less useful and yet less useful. And he ultimately has to wrap his shame, his cut up feet with it, so he can save his wife. And at the end of the movie, if you notice, John McClane is outside in the snow and his wife has her business coat around him. Well, snow, it's really just fax paper fucking yeah, floating yeah, yeah, into yeah. the air. But, but she yeah, is covering him. It's a subversion of that trope with her business coat yeah. to keep him warm. And yeah. I because love Because a single woman could not get her foot, like you had to be a single woman to even get your foot in the door. That's what she you says. had to be successful. To explain why she let, changed her name. I love this take. This is like in our pantheon of great takes. I I do too. And I think that it's especially the way that you took the apparel, Dom. And I think that's honestly like so true. It's so symbolic because he takes off, like you said, the symbol of um, his, you know, resistance to this change of his wife becoming, you know, this... Um, force in the family where she can be sort of the breadwinner and and it's kind of a change for him and he he takes off that symbol of his change you know change and he kind of is still able to be a hero just as she's able to be a hero and they're kind of heroes together and then she provides her you know symbol of power her business coat to him just as he provides a sort of power to her by using his own skills of being a police officer so it's like you know I think that's an amazing take and it's almost like you don't have to the point I think is that you don't have to sacrifice either person doesn't necessarily have to sacrifice in this equation like or this endeavor like both people can still use their skills together in being partners and still achieve what they want to achieve and I think that that's like an amazing coming together at the end and um, some people think that I, I was kind of reading a little bit that John, because he's sort of in the beginning unable to show intimacy with his wife in the sense of like being vulnerable about these changes in their lives, he shows it with the other police officer. Oh, um, okay. Now you're stepping on my take. Oh, okay. But um, I honestly think that that's like a separate relationship and maybe that does help him become John kind of evolve more into getting rid of this fear that he had. Officer Powell is his Virgil. In kind of like Fuck a, you, you stole what I was going to say. Okay, you know what? Fuck you. I'm getting into okay. my second shot. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, Dom, I love your take. take. But just yeah. as you alluded to, this is an underworld tale. What's the second most famous underworld tale in the world? It's Dante's, Dante's Inferno. Inferno. And who is the guide shepherding McLean through this thing, but not being able to fucking do anything about it? Who's his Virgil? Who's his apparition in the airwaves? It's none other than Al. My second take is I love Willis and, um, gosh, his name is escaping me. He was on Home Alone. Uh, he's the, the actor who plays Steve Urkel's dad. Um, uh, Al Johnson, something Johnson. 
Uh, Al Van Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Van Johnson's and Willis's chemistry. Thank Are you, Dom. Reginald Val, Val Johnson. Val Reginald Johnson. Val Johnson yeah. and Bruce Willis's chemistry is amazing in mm-hmm. this movie. Like some people, and I won't name names, but some people who are close to me think that the the man is cheesy. That the man is uh, just <laughs> over the top and just not a very good character in this movie. But I'd argue he's the best character because his cheesiness contrasts so perfectly with Willis's edge mm-hmm. that they you totally buy that these guys take from one another. The best of friends that you have have qualities that complement you, not ident- like are identical to you, that mirror image you. And, and uh, real quick... Uh, Reginald plays Sergeant Al Powell. So that's his character's name. So Al and McLean have this amazing chemistry that they take through this whole thing. They identify with each other about being fathers, about being police officers, about being in shit situations, about being in situations that are just insurmountable and uncomprehendable to the modern person, right? You're going about your business. You don't think about being a police officer and having to shoot a child, right? Yeah, which, that's how Powell was emasculated. Which does happen. And you're doing a police officer, you don't think about having to potentially use your skills to take down terrorists. Both are fictional, but both are rooted in some kind of reality of needing to use your skills to get out of an insurmountable situation, a la Virgil and Dante a la Orpheus in the underworld, right? It's it's a timeless tale that somebody just transitioned to the modern day and like it or not, it, it translates very well because it's just so freaking influential as Marissa pointed out. Okay. And and so, Virgil's unclean because of sin and Al's, he's unclean because of, he subverted the task of a police officer. He did not serve and protect. A hundred percent. And he John said, McClane is ultimately serving and protecting. Exactly. He said, you know what? I'm going to just do my job. And then it ends up like completely just giving him this completely new perspective that I think helps him identify with McLean and be a better shepherd for him, a better guide for him because he's there. He's like, dude, I know this job is not like black and white. I know that it's not all about um doing the the default thing of 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 just you know calling the authority sometimes you know in this particular case he takes it upon himself and it makes it a more believable realized every man character right that's not to say that that has anything to do with modern day policing you know that's a whole another conversation but i do think that for this character just to be like an every man which is what i think he's a representation of I think it's flawlessly executed and has nothing to really do with the police system. It's a it's it's it surpasses that tale. It it overcomes that mortal, you know, real world analog, if you will. Like it, it really goes into like like a really philosophical place, I think. And that's why this movie's yeah. just like been so influential and so good. It's evocative um, of like I mean, it's still happening today. Tamir Rice was a little boy who was shot with a nerf gun. Yeah. And Al shot a little kid who had a toy gun. Yeah. This is 20 something, 20, 30 years later, and it's still happening. Exactly, Dom. And that's an excellent point and something that we should not um, just discredit. Um, you know, and I, I think that they might have been trying to call some attention to that in Die Hard. Um, even With police brutality? Almost, you know, 40, no, 38 years ago. I, I Yeah, 38 years ago. Right? 
No. No. 32 years ago. 32 years ago. Yeah. I can't do math after no, I've can't. had a few champagne cocktails. Well, you know how I know it was 32 years ago? Oh. Because last night, because of the holidays, I watched my aunt's wedding video. And it was and she so got married 80s, in 1988? 32 years ago. Congratulations yeah. <laughs> to your aunt. Thank you. I'll That's pass that awesome. on. Hopefully she'll be a listener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to your aunt, bro. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my second shot is the the chemistry between um, these two actors, Bruce Willis and Reginald Val Johnson. Marissa? All right. So the moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> the shot we've all taken for. <laughs> I'm going to hold my breath. No, I'm um, just kidding. Um, but I am going to talk about Bruce Willis. And I'm going to talk about his character because I have a hot take here. Everybody oh. says he plays the every man. I disagree with that. Okay. Mm. Um, that's everybody's take about this movie. I feel like that he's representative of the every man just because he has like a slight belly. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think he does, but, Balding um, somewhat. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I think it's the widow's peak really. Yeah. No, I, I, and I'll get into that, but so I think that, um, Bruce Willis is perfect for this role. I love how when he was to, to the point, I think that everybody's trying to make by saying that he's kind of representative of an everyman is that uh, people were afraid when this movie was coming out that he had lack of star appeal. You know, he wasn't an Arnold Schwarzenegger in that he was like a super jacked guy, right? And he wasn't like a super suave debonair type or even like a Bogart type like you were saying, Dom. He was just different, right? And I think that I totally get the everyman thing. I think that he is like relatable in so many aspects to an every man or woman in that like he cusses, he's reactive, he's explosive, if you will. But I also think that he has an inherent sense of charisma that carries the movie. And I wouldn't say that the every man has the same sense of charisma that Bruce Willis and his character John McClane have because his charisma is what makes the movie, right? And he takes his charisma in other movies. I mean, that's just a Bruce Willis thing. But um, I think this charisma is not like the kind that you would typically think of like a James Bond type charisma where it's like, oh, that man's really suave. It's like, no, he has like a very kind of shocking like um charisma but at the same time it's because um the way that he talks and the way that he approaches people is very genuine and i think this got brought up earlier but he's just a very real person like he's not afraid to talk about who he is you know and i think that you know he only talks it's funny i'm sorry i don't want to interrupt but no go ahead because i was pausing i was thinking collecting my thoughts so the female dispatcher is like the only other woman other than his wife and his wife's friend who interrupts them when they're having their argument that he talks to and he completely turns her off. Right. He's, he's like, like, what do you think I am ordering a fucking pizza? Yeah. But then meanwhile- Do you think that's what turns women off? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, <laughs> he doesn't have that sexu- sexual appeal, but Al, this guy who's never met, this cop, this other everyman, he connects with and he gets Al as his biggest defender. Mm-hmm. Like the his chief of police is like, who is this guy? A par- a bartender? Yeah. Which is funny because Bruce Willis was a bartender before he made this movie, <laughs> but Al fights for him mm-hmm. strictly on his you know purely on his strength of character, and it kind of subverts the fact that he's not the kind of action hero like who all the women swoon over. They're just like, who the hell is this guy? We're gonna yeah. report you to the FCC. I think that. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, the FCC didn't give a shit back then. That's what she says. All right. Yeah. I think that I don't know. This is I I love it, and maybe I'm just biased because like I watched this movie. And it's already ex- in existence, and this is, like, when I watched I knew this was the action movie. But to me, like, him not being so suave and him not being so, you know, cheesy or whatever, I think that is, like, his greatest quality. Like, I think that it makes for a very interesting character, and it makes the movie funny, because when he says stuff, you know, like, yippee Kaye, of course it's very funny because you know i just think that the casting for this movie couldn't have been any better i just i don't know and i know that they were considering a lot of other people for this role and there were doubts but um i think that it's just it's why it's so enduring is because of him i agree it it really is. Like, it can't be understated just how important this is. This makes his whole career. I mean, really, after this, because he was on Moonlighting right before this and mm-hmm. doing a good lot of work on TV. But after this, he becomes one of the most legendary stars. He becomes an act bona fide action star that appears in most other things. This opens so many doors for him. Because of this, he can be in... Death Becomer, this, he can be in Pulp Fiction, he can be in uh, Sixth Sense, all these things. And, you know, that 90s run that he has is just... Unbreakable. Unbreakable. I think that's uh, kind of where... run is unbreakable. Really, well, yeah, I, but the movie Unbreakable. Yeah. I think that's kind of where it ends, to be honest with you, Unbreakable, because after that we get Sleepy Bruce Willis, which Sleepy. has just been so terrible. And I, it kind of makes me sad because obviously we know he can act and it's just yeah. been like not great ever I, since then. I I like Red. Mm, Red's a good movie. I think Even he's in done Red, I think ones. he's like kind of like half-assing. Like, does he have a single like over-the-top reaction showcasing his acting ability Is in he half-assing it or is he just not getting the kind of roles that he used to get? He's. I feel like he's Bruce Willis. He can get whatever role he wants. Maybe. I feel like someone probably told him on the set of Die Hard, like, you're too emotional. You're too emotional, Bruce. And yeah. I feel like he re- took that to heart. Because <laughs> in this movie, he's super emotional for an action hero. He's like jumping up and down like, no, turn around. I'm going to kiss you, Dalmatian. I disagree because 10 years later, he's in, you know, Pulp Fiction and the Sixth Sense. And he's... He is not emotional in Pulp Fiction. I disagree. Yeah, he's. Emo- I I I see what you're saying, Patrick. I think he's very similar to this character in Pulp Fiction. Let me ask you something, Dom. Yeah. You know the scene in Pulp Fiction when he's trapped in the. Uh, for those of y'all who haven't seen in the Pulp Fiction, we won't spoil it with it. But he's trapped in the pawn shop. Yeah, with Marcel. Okay. He does some of the best face acting I've ever seen because he simultaneously conveys adrenaline, fear, anger like denial self-hatred and self-hatred and self-loathing and like uh, uh, remorse because of his actions and mm-hmm. what he almost does in that pawn shop scene he can do some incredible shit and just the fact that like as soon as 2002 hits as soon as oceans 12 hits he's like you know what i'm just gonna be like Oh, Julia, so great to see you. you know, <laughs> like just super reserved and quiet the rest of the fucking decade. Like, 
I I still I I will admit to our our hardcore fans out there, shame on me. I still haven't seen Glass, which yeah. I really love. He's to see. very subdued. In Glass. Well, I think. Um, yeah, but I've heard it's still better than half the shit he's put out lately. I think his tough guy persona, and and this is me kind of circling back. I'm sorry to uh, what we were talking about earlier, but I think in this movie he has a perfect tough guy persona that's a little bit different than your usual, but it's like very entertaining and very much like i believe that this guy is a real tough guy a real person right and i believe that this person exists i think it inspired especially his tank top usage of vin diesel in the fast and furious franchise i think that, that um you know it's there's a certain kind of tough guy and vin diesel like we were talking about earlier and dom you had uh i think we were having this conversation before about vin diesel i don't know at some point but um, I think that Vin Diesel is also like not your typical like, oh, he's your typical action star, but he was cast and he was perfect for the role. And you're like, oh, my gosh, Vin Diesel is the perfect tough guy in this role. I mean, he's obviously not as explosive and as emotional. Sometimes he is in the Fast and Furious, but I think that it's the same kind of concept. Like, I don't always like it when action movies cast some like super suave or super you know typical pretty boy or whatever in the role i think it's much better if you cast somebody with a little bit of edge and who has a great personality because that is what makes the character harrison ford yeah yes harrison ford too he's not your typical like you know and he's the only other guy i could see in this role (laughs) i i agree with that and it's because he's been in a very similar role all uh, the president movies (laughs) Yeah, the one where he's on Air Force One. Yeah. Air Force One. Yeah. That's like, it's, it's diehard in, only gonna tell you in the air. <laughs> yeah. Get off my plane. Get off my plane. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Dom, please do us the honor of gracing us with your top floor of Nakatomi Plaza. My third shot? Your third shot, <laughs> my friend. Wow. It would have to be the music. Mm. Oh. You did um, point out some great points about the music that I'd never noticed. And being a musician, I'm ashamed I never noticed them, but I thought they were brilliant. I, I think it, the fact that for an action movie, they took the time to make joy to the world into the... the, the, the a motif. The motif. Into a motif. And it's not only it's hummed at certain points, it's played in the background... Uh, it's played in the background twice. Once it's played in the background when Al is at the corner store, and also it's played in the background the orchestral version, the Beethoven version at the Nakatomi Christmas party. And I think we talked about this when we were watching the movie. Uh, at one point, uh, Takogi says like, or Takagi. Uh, Takagi. I'm sorry. He asks John McClane, or John McClane asks him like, I didn't know the Japanese celebrate Christmas. He's like. Oh, we don't. Ever since Pearl Harbor, you know, phased out, we we thought we'd win you over with tape decks. But it shows that there's there's kind of like an awkwardness to this Christmas party. Mm. Yeah, yes. it's forced it's, just in such a way as so many. I can speak for this from experience, but so many corporate Christmas parties are often forced. They are done as a token of, okay, we will give you some sort of like you know, bone will throw you some sort of life raft that you've gone through this whole year of just, here you go. Here's some ability to, uh, you know, at least have fun, forget about all that because we're going to give you stuff for free. But if there's no sincerity behind it, you end up with 
people playing Beethoven's Joe to the World as opposed to the Christmas Carol. And which is what I was going to say. Like, they take A, that the Nakatomi Christmas Party, they're playing like very somber orchestral versions of all these Christmas songs, which is very foreshadowing because it's it's not an average Christmas party. People get shot and a lot of people end up dying. But uh, it also is really cool in how they take the motif of joy to the world and they play it throughout the movie and put you on edge. You're full of edge. You're full of adrenaline. Yeah. And it's funny. Anyone who says this movie isn't a Christmas movie, Marissa brought this up two points. One, they use in the, in the score to this movie, they use sleigh bells subtly. Mm -hmm. They really do. To evoke dread and to evoke that Christmas feeling. (laughs) But two, at the very end of the movie, what is the song that plays it out? <laughs> let it let snow. It snow. snow. Let it snow. And I there mean, is fake it. snow. It's like yeah. an LA Christmas with the paper <laughs> ashes falling down, yeah. as we yeah, already mentioned. And we'll get to that in last call. But yeah, like I, it, the Christmas movie, non-Christmas movie debate. I think we all are on the same page. About yeah, it. and and I was like I was saying, I was considering making this one of my shots, but. It kind of just ends up be, becoming something that, of course, we're just going to keep circling around so we can keep discussing it because I, you know, I, I have other things that. But I love I your talk take. About. Yeah, I, I love the take, Dom. I think that's great to notice the motif. Oh, and also, back to music, the fact that he's listening to skeletons at two separate scenes in the limo, set thirty minutes apart, shows that this guy's bored out of his. How gourd. does that song go again? Very good. <laughs> So for my third and final shot, um, I kind of wanted to bring up something that I thought was a bit more niche, but it just stuck out to me because I think it's the best scene in this entire movie. It showcases the two best performances in this movie, in Willis and Rickman, in my opinion. And I think that it just, it's been copied so many times since, and it's never been executed as well. I'm talking, of course, about the Hans scene where Willis finds Hans and holds him at gunpoint and accuses him of like being a terrorist and not wanting to, you know, comply and holds him at gunpoint and says, who are you? Interrogates him in the way a cop interrogates a suspect. He is very aggressive. He is just. And as he should be, he's been shot at, he's defied death multiple times, but he takes a very just mercurial approach to this where he's just like, who are you and what are you doing? And is on the defensive, right? Little does he know his suspect is the ringleader of this whole operation. And then Gruber, who is a British man playing a German, albeit not with a great German accent, then suddenly adopts this great American accent. Texas accent. A, a Southern American accent. Yeah. And so uh, you, William Clay. I'm Clay. William Clay. And where does Will, he get that? Bill Clay. And you instantly think, he okay. He usual suspects him. He sees the name William Clay on yeah. the, the, the board. Exactly. <laughs> it's just such a great spur of the moment thing. And, and you buy it and it plays into the whole thematic cowboy thing uh, about and he how- the ante. Exactly. We know Hans Gruber is Hans Gruber, but what does he do, Pat? What does Bruce? What does McLean give Gruber to he suddenly hands make him the... a pistol? He hands him the weapon of the old west. He hands him the thing for a showdown, as if almost he in... hands him. He hands him. <laughs> Stop. 
the, no. the gun <laughs> as if almost inviting the 10 paces stare down that's about to happen at two paces away. And it's just so great because you know what we know as we, the audience, know that he's the villain. John, don't do it. He does it. And Willis's smirk in this moment is just something of beauty because he is like looking away from him. We see him at the camera. McTiernan films this perfectly. It's a Dutch angle. You're kind of thrown off balance because you know that Willis is about to throw this whole freaking thing off balance completely because you're like, okay, we know it. And we don't really expect John to know it, but then he subverts it again. It's like a subversion within a subversion that's executed so brilliantly because he's like, you think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? Come on, give me that gun. And what's funny, too, about it is it, it when you've watched it a lot of times and you expect that you know like Bruce Willis goes yeah, and turns on it, you can see that that was his strategy. I think he knew Oh, Hans he Gruber knew from the moment he said his name was And Bill why did he give him the gun? Because he was trying to catch the villain monologuing. What does Bruce Willis ask him when he has the gun to his head and Hans Gruber doesn't suspect he's getting out of it? What do you need the detonators for? Yep. That's what he's trying to figure out. Oh, yes. He knows it from the beginning, and it's a complete like underestimation of the everyman. I still subscribe to that theory, but just underestimating somebody in general. You don't know where they've been. You don't know what they're capable of, and if you just assume everything about this and you assume that they're dumb because they're from a different culture, because they're just not you, that can come and bite you in the ass. And it almost does for Hans if his henchman didn't show up in the elevator right after that. His Hansman. But, but just the whole scene, like all of the, the dynamic between Willis being this so confident, self-assured cop and the equal like just I've outsmarted you. I'm like 10 moves ahead of you in chess of Hans Gruber who's funding this whole criminal enterprise and they share a cigarette and they exchange the guns. His and like, last cigarette. Exactly. Bruce Willis has two cigarettes. He smokes one. He's like, do you smoke? He's like, oh, yeah. That whole interchange is just so brilliant because you're like, oh my God, who's gonna win this battle of wits? And it's, and literally if it wasn't for the henchman, it would be John McClane. Mm-hmm. You know what the battle of wits in this movie reminds me of? What's that? Oh my God! Okay, take a drink, listeners. For every time Marissa mentions heat or and or the Dark Knight, yeah, I really just want it. I, yeah, her two um, favorite movies. She had a. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> I had coffee with Hans Gruber a half an hour ago. <laughs> I had a cigarette with Hans Gruber. Yeah. Oh, oh man. so good, so good. Um, Marissa, before we get too far into the weeds, we will do heat one day. I promise. Please, uh, <laughs> we, we will do heat one day. So I swear. Why don't you go ahead and give us your last shot about Die Hard? All right. So my last shot is just how much I love Alan Rickman. So um, Alan Rickman, this is one of his. We all know him, of course, for his other um, amazing performance in Love Actually. Um, <laughs> Dogma. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was uh in Harry Potter. Yeah, I think uh-huh. maybe. Oh, um, but no, uh, really? Alan Ripman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rest in peace. Man. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, really, I just legend. I real quick had to of course mention because this, um, you know, of course, like Snape is his enduring role, um, 
it's so such a beloved performance and if you go back and watch like interviews with him and the kid like the harry potter cast when they were kids and they all have like such wonderful things to say about him as an actor and how like he just you know i i think um the guy who plays ron weasley Weimer, rupert grint. rupert grint yeah he was saying like when he was a kid he drew like a picture um he was just joking around of alan rickman and Alan Rickman dressed as Snape, like, came over and was like, what are you doing or something? Like, took the picture, just joking. But then he just kind of messed with him. And, uh, you know, Rupert Grant said he was, like, kind of scared. But then years later, Alan Rickman, like, showed him the picture. And he's like, oh, I kept this picture that you drew of me all these Aww. years late. Like, he found out that he kept the picture. and That's you know, crazy. It, but, like, the whole That's time. so heartwarming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the, I know that the cast, like, everybody had good things to say about him. He was, like, such a sweet man. And... This role, even though like we do jest about the kind of German accent is funny thing. Um, he, this really, I think, you know, he, he's really remembered for this role and this villain because um, a lot of people talk about how this villain is interesting. And like the reason why I think the script is interesting, of course, I actually think the script is really good in this movie and people can fight me. Except but, for the German. <laughs> yeah. We're it, having kind of zeet. Oh, I, no. I think that um, Alan Rickman's performance is what elevates the villain angle to like a whole new level. And it's it is over the top in many ways, but it is witty. And in, in, in you have that banter with him and, and John McClane or not even banter, but just like the idea that these are two forces coming together. And when you have that kind of coming in a good match, it always makes a good action movie. And I think he's a great opposite to um, to the character of John McClane. And yeah, just uh, I-, I think that's one of the first things that I think about when I think about Die Hard is his performance and just how um, how uh, much as an actor, he just took on so many interesting roles. Uh, like I-, I was joking about Love Actually, but even <laughs> in that movie, his role is, is very interesting and and explores like a family dynamic that is one of the more emotional parts of that movie. So he's a great, you know, I just love watching his movies. Alan and I always Rickman, will. Great at playing complex characters. Have you seen yeah. Bottle Shock? I haven't. Bottle Shock with him and Chris Pine. It's like set in the California wine country in the, the 60s or 70s. It's like the first time in California Chardonnay. I'm going to stop oh. you right there. Yeah. I'm sold. Yeah, that, you just need to watch it. He Chris plays Pine that kind of character like, where, like, you don't expect him to be a good guy, but he is kind of like Snape. Pine, Patrick loves Chris Pine. Yeah, it's I, a great movie. And Chris I just Pine's wanna, got long hippie hair. I I just want to. I can't say it, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey! As to the characterization of him as a villain, you just reminded me the cat and mouse play between just like he. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no. Uh, <laughs> Remember, the villains get really upset at one point because they're like, he knows everything because they can hear him on the radio telling the cops the yeah. names. And you see John McClane writing the names down because he's listening carefully because he's paying attention. But Alan Rickman is, Hans Gruber is equally paying attention because he only saw John McClane not wearing shoes once. Mm-hmm. And then when they have him undergunned and he's already, he shot the knees out of one of his henchmen, he immediately tells his guy and- Shoot the glass. Yeah, well, yeah, but he says it in German, and then the guys are, oh, what? I've spoke German my whole life. I don't know what you want me to do. And he's like, no, shoot the glass. Yeah, they'll be saying it in an English-German accent. <laughs> yeah. It's such a clever move. Yeah, and honorable mention, I know I'm not typically 
you know, I'm kind of cheating here, but a shot that we were all thinking but didn't get to mention is John McClane's feet and the fact that he ran through the whole movie oh, barefoot. God. Like, we could go to the I, I did podcast. mention how his, you know, his first, when he takes the shoes off, it's for pleasure. Yeah. Oh, that's true. You did mention pain. it. I just think, like, the idea that he goes through the whole movie without his shoes on is just such a fascinating... He's exposing his soul to the world. It, it, you're right, Dom. You did mention his it. Souls. Very symbolic. Uh, we don't need to talk about his feet. That shit is unsettling. <laughs> so, we've all talked about <laughs> our top three things that we love to discuss about Die Hard. It's just been a great rewatch, guys. I'm so glad we did this. It's a great holiday movie. It's Got a feel-good movie. Spirit. In 2020? Ay, Dios mio. Like, of all the things that you want to watch, it's a feel-good thing in a shit year. Explosives always feel-good movie for Americans. You know, we just watch a bunch of things blown up, a bunch of action stuff, and we're good to go. It releases endorphins, <laughs> and I'm not going to combat that. I'm going to just let it happen. <laughs> and so with that, right. <laughs> you know what else we're going to let happen? The ending of this movie. Oh, it, all good things must end, unfortunately, and that's why we have to talk about the ending of this movie. Talk about maybe why McTiernan chose to end this movie as the way he did, and maybe have that debate about Christmas once and for all in our last segment, appropriately titled "Last Call." Okay, so last call. We are going to talk about the ending of the movie and why we think it ends this way. But the thing that we always ask is, where does the ending begin? What qualifies as the ending? Dom, you look like you want to speak. Yeah, I'll be the, the ghost of Christmas past on this one, Pat. <laughs> I want to start at the climactic scene where Hans Gruber is, he's just been shot and Bruce Willis just shot Huey Lewis, his last remaining henchman. <laughs> And Hans Gruber just fell out the window, and he's holding on to Holly Gennaro's wrist. Mm -hmm. What is he holding on to? The Rolex. Chekhov's Rolex. It's mm. a great, it's a great <laughs> plot device for any great drama. It's Chekhov's Rolex. Earlier in the movie, the character Ellis said he wanted Holly to show him the watch, and yep. he built up this huge watch. It was like symbolic of Holly's success in the underworld in corporate America. I'm sure she I'll see it. She was rewarded with a watch, and he says, "I'm sure I'll see it." sometime and sure enough he does and what ends up happening they get rid of it it's it's what kills hans gruber more than anything else is this rolex watch getting released from holly Gennaro's wrist the material wealth tying john mcclain and his wife back together again the band is released and their wedding bands are all they have left mm -hmm. so i as the beginning of the end i love it because it ties into that orpheus motif They've, it's the first time in the whole movie since the beginning that they're together again and that they're holding each other again. And what do they cast off? They cast off the terrorist villain, very literally, but they also cast off her ties to Nakatomi Plaza, the watch that Ellis, this scummy guy who almost set everything back, gave to her. They cast it into the ether. And you're right, Don. Like, she doesn't need that in order to be successful and be with her husband she can get rid of the material kind of 
negative part of it and still retain her power and be a businesswoman and have her business jacket like you mentioned before and still be with her husband and he can accept like this change in society this change that this women empowerment thing and being a partner like all at the same time it's like a great you know i don't think that's how everyone perceives it but i think that that is how after you explained your theory you know, and how I was thinking about it, I would like to perceive it as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, and Marissa, I agree with you completely. I think that it's, it's a, it's an interesting relationship at the end for sure. Uh, and then Dom, I love your take as well. I think that, you know, the real love story, let's be honest, it's between McLean and Al Powell. I yeah. Mean, it's very fast and furious, isn't that, Marissa? <laughs> yeah. It's very Paul Walker Vin Oh Diesel. yeah, definitely. The way the music swells and they stare into each other's eyes. That's it's not a even a beautiful moment. It's not even a controversial take, but Dom, I think that the ending truly starts once they are down there and the subversion happens where Holly is carrying John and then all of a sudden, surprise, the henchman is still alive. And it's a very specific henchman. He is the brother of the first person John McClane kills. Mm-hmm. Who makes it all the way to the end, to the and epilogue. who kills him but John McClane's new brother, <laughs> yeah. Al Powell, Steve Urkel's neighbor. Yeah, and some people think it's, you know, kind of cheesy that he has, like, a role shoehorned in at the end. And, you know, maybe it is to some extent. Maybe no, there's some he validity. has the biggest character development. Like, I, I was saying off topic earlier, like, at the end of the day... The real love story is between Powell and policing. Oh, really? He he falls in love with his duty again. Yeah, and he rekindles the love. By being a protector and saving this person he's starting to love again. And what better type of film about a rekindling of a love lost than a Christmas film? Mm. When Yuletide... This is basically a Hallmark celebration. I think it is. That I would watch in my jammies. Yes. Jammies? <laughs> yes, I, I agree completely. I can attest. Um, you don't need money. <laughs> <laughs> it's the power love. <laughs> the power love. love. <laughs> Amazing. I, yeah, I think that. <laughs> Thank you for the reprise of skeletons there. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's where the ending starts. But either way. Can we all agree that the last shot is kind of iconic and puts an end to all of the Christmas debate? I mean, like Marissa alluded to earlier, it's fax paper flying out of this office building like snow on the ground. And then Argyle drives them away in Let It Snow. Yeah. In basically a carriage. In basically a carriage, yes. And I just think that even though the movie does not put Christmas at the center stage... Which is, in my opinion, the only argument against it being yeah, a Christmas movie. I, I think that is the only argument. I, I think that the themes and the familial bond that is like a through line through this movie, even though it's not uh, also not the center stage, it is like the beating heart of this movie is uh, McLean's whole devotion to his family. And all the scenes interjecting like with the scumbag lawyers and like Holly and the motif of the photos of the family being like a plot device. I we mean, never even talked about the press. We did not talk about the press because they are just like the, the secondary villains of this movie. Yeah. You know? They really are. They they allow Hans Gruber to know that Holly Gennaro is Holly Gennaro. And like. they get what's coming to them. They get a big punch in the face 
from Holly at the end, much deserved, because the man threatened to call the INS on a woman who... Last had, act of violence in the movie is Holly Who Janeiro. he had no idea was... Uh, <laughs> like, he just kind of threw that threat out there. She could have been an American citizen. She very well could have, and it's just a rude thing. The reason I think that her the housekeeper lets them into the house is because he like dramatizes the whole situation and says this might be the last time the kids can talk to their parents, which logically makes sense, but he didn't care about that. No. It wasn't sincere at all. He was using it as a means to an end, and that's why they're the secondary villains of this movie. I completely agree. And um, I was just going to say real quick, for anyone that disagrees with us about this take, because I think all three of us are in agreement that this is a Christmas movie. It's but a Christmas movie. There's... You know, I was reading some polls about only about 25% people polled actually think this is a Christmas movie. The other people are wrong category. Yeah. Yeah. But if you disagree, feel free to email us at momixpod at gmail.com. That's M-O-M-I-X-P-O-D at gmail.com. And we would love to hear arguments because I know uh, I know some people who, you know, I've talked to who disagree with us about this point. And if you would like your uh you know your reasoning to be read on air then feel free to contact us please tell us and while you're at it um please go ahead and follow us on social media momixpod at gmail.com is our email but at momixpod is our handle on both facebook and instagram m-o-m-i-x-p-o-d and if you want to give us some extra support go ahead and rate and review us on apple podcasts i mean that's how kind of we get discovered it's the season of giving. I mean, if you want to give a little and you don't really want to contribute to Kickstarters or GoFundMes or anything like that, this is free. All you got to do is go on Apple Podcasts, put five stars, maybe a little blurb about why you like us. And that's it. Um, and now uh, I want to take this time for Dom to have open free space for being our awesome guest to um, plug anything he would like to plug or discuss uh Anything he would like to discuss within, um, I guess, the boundaries of that we have set for this show. <laughs> Anything to plug, my friend. <laughs> yeah, so uh, check out season two coming out hopefully in the early spring around NFL draft season of my own podcast that Woo! I do with my friends. Yeah, yeah it's produced by Triple. Wait, Option we're not Media. your friends. <laughs> no. <laughs> With Ouch. A, a select group of cats. It's a college football podcast <laughs> called the College Football Family Hour. It's very family appropriate if your family consists of middle-aged men and no one else. Uh, <laughs> and gamblers. And gamblers, Woo-hoo! yeah. And, I, I can't confirm this is the best gambling on college sports podcast I've ever heard. It's it's a, definitely a fun time. And it's, it's all independently produced and mixed. And it is the season of giving. And just like Pat said, all you have to do, go on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and then open another tab and send me a hundred dollars. And that's all I need from you in order to, you know, be a successful podcast host. Amen. Well, you guys should definitely check out Dom's podcast. Thank you. It's been um, so wonderful to have you here. You you. and Mason. Even though uh, you don't think we're your friends. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you're real friends. Mason and Luke and Connor (laughs) are absolutely, you know, great rapport with you. You you produce most of the episodes. It's some top quality stuff. If you like what you heard from Dom here, just imagine that in like an amazing sports setting and you've got yourself a good time. So Thank please you, check them out. College Football Family Hour. Check it out on Spotify, the Google Play Store, or Apple Music. Yeah, or but check us out podcasts. first. 
Um, yeah. And, and so with that, we're going to say goodbye and happy holidays. Uh, no matter what holiday you're celebrating, we hope that this is a time to remember that even though 2020 was hard on everybody, there are always good days. There are always good things. Thank you all so much for listening. And we'll... Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. Man, you stole my line. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Wow, I was going to give them a little this. preview about what's coming next week in our um, next oh, yeah. our, our M episode. Uh, we'll be doing the Mai Tai from uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, but Woo! we'll probably do that. Um, we're, we're still deciding whether we're going to do that next week or take a week-long break. If we do it next week, surprise, if we take another break, then uh, we warned you and we'll see you in 2021. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, sorry. I missed the cue. That's okay. But it's all right. Dom probably says it better. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys, for listening. Stay, stay safe and have a happy holiday season and um, next couple days, even if you don't celebrate any holidays. Stay thirsty. What? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Pat. Pat.